Welcome to Now Appalachia. The Appalachian region covers 13 states in the U.S. and over 25 million people call the region home. This podcast profiles the authors and publishers with connections to Appalachia and how the region influences and impacts their creative work. And now, here's your host, author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. And hello, friends. We welcome you once again and welcome you back to Now Appalachia. We are carried and distributed by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network all across the country and all around the world, courtesy of the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Elliot Parker. It's great to have you with us as we profile another outstanding Appalachian author with connections to the region and how the region influences and impacts their works. And we love to have uh, authors with debut books on the program. It's something that we've done for a long time on the show. If you've been with us before or if you're just tuning in for the first time, and we have a fantastic accomplished author who is with us today with her debut book. M. Hendricks is with us today. The title of her new book is called The Chaperone. And the subtitle is In New America, In New America, Girls Are Never Alone. And she joins us today. She is a Pushcart Prize nominated author of two previous books. She's born in Baltimore and raised in New Jersey, but she's also lived in 12 states, but now makes her home in Bowling Green, Kentucky, with her husband, New York Times bestselling author David Bell, who's also been a previous author on our program. And The Chaperone is her first novel. So, M, welcome to the program. So glad to have you here to talk to us about. About this fantastic uh, debut novel that you've written. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Elliot. I'm so glad to be here. Well, it is so good to have you here, and I'm delighted to have you here because th- this is a, a terrific book that is a, a dystopian story, but it's also kind of a thriller, and it's also got uh, so many other different elements kind of imbued in, in one story. It's just really, really terrific, and I can't wait to talk to you about it. But I wanted to ask you one question first because I think this kind of sets up the, the backdrop of your story in that what we see in terms of setting and where this story takes place is in a place called New America. And that's mm-hmm. kind of featured in your subtitle there. In New America, girls are never alone. Uh, set the scene for us or describe for us this new America, you know, what it is, uh, what are some of the cultural norms and mores that exist here uh, in this new America? And how does, um, you know, that affect what goes on and how does that impact your main uh, character, Stella? Okay. So the main character is a 17 year old named Stella, and she has pretty much grown up her whole life in new America. And since we're talking about the region, I'll say um, her town is actually Bowling Green, Kentucky, 15 years in the future. And when new America is formed, it's formed by a group of rogue evangelicals who want to form like a more Christian country. And so they break off from the United States and they take over basically seven States in the South, including Kentucky and West Virginia and some other states in the region. And they create a society where women don't really have any rights. And so women in this country are not allowed to have careers. They're not allowed to drive cars unless it's an emergency. They don't have bank accounts or credit cards. They definitely don't have bodily autonomy. And most importantly to Stella, teenage girls are not allowed to go out in public without a government assigned chaperone. So for Stella, it's just normal that when she, you know, becomes a woman, quote unquote, um, her chaperone moves into her house and lives with her and guides her through her adolescence and teaches her something called the danger protocol, which is what they teach girls to how to protect themselves from men. Because in new America, girls and women have to protect themselves with men. The responsibility lies with them. 
And so I will say that in the beginning of the book, um, Stella is basically best friends with her chaperone sister, Helen, because she's been spending almost six years with her since she was just before she turned 12. And then on the very beginning of the book, sister Helen is murdered and Stella's whole life is thrown into turmoil and she slowly starts to figure out that maybe this world, new America, and maybe these rules, the danger protocol aren't really helping her and aren't really good for her. Excellent. And Stella kind of occupies an interesting position. You were talking about kind of who she is as a character and her background. You know, I was thinking about this as I read the book and then I got about halfway, a little over halfway through. And I thought, oh, wait a minute, this this might this impacts a little bit of her story in the fact that uh, as she arrives in New America, or as she's brought to this New America, she's kind of in a different sort of socioeconomic status than some of the other characters. I mean, she's she's white. Uh, she's very wealthy. Her father is sort of of this privileged class or or what would be the bourgeoisie of the uh, of this new America. How does that sort of uh, expose her to things or give her protections uh, that maybe other characters that didn't have those demographics would would face? How does she kind of benefit or or get um, so have a different set of experiences, I guess, than maybe another character might? Right. That's an excellent observation. So the book is primarily about gender. But then secondarily, it's about class. So Stella, her father is the president and CEO of the largest auto manufacturer in New America. And basically what happens is that the Corvette company is based in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And so when New America is formed, the group that forms New America are called the Minutemen. And they take over Corvette and they just turn it into a company that produces all kinds of cars. They basically steal Corvette from General Motors and make it into a giant automatic manufacturing company. They make SUVs, they make sedans, they make everything. So since her dad is president in this company, he is one of the most powerful people in New America. And she grows up very sheltered and very privileged, as you said, because other girls who grow up without money in New America can't afford to pay to have their own chaperone. So the chaperones are chosen and trained by the government in a chaperone conservatory, and they're selected by the constables who they decide who, which chaperone goes in which home. But if you come from a family that can't afford to pay for your own private chaperone, you have to move into a chaperone run government school. It's called Govy or the government school, kind of like you call G, you know, juvie. Um, and it's a place where girls move as soon as they quote unquote become a woman, they start menstruating and then they have no freedom. They live there until they're married off. Because um, when New America was formed, a lot of women fled the country, as you can imagine, because they knew they weren't going to have as much freedom. And so they need to train young women to want to be moms and to get married and have babies. So what they want to do is they want all girls to learn that marriage is the ideal. They teach them that and they want to get them married as soon as possible, you know, as soon as they turn 17, 18 years old. And so the girls who don't come from money are sent to this government school where they're indoctrinated even more than Stella is. I mean, Stella is indoctrinated. She goes to the private high school in town called Bull Run Prep. And I guess I should jump in and say that all of the cities in New America have been named after Civil War battles. And if you know your Civil War history, you know that Bull Run was the first and bloodiest massacre of the first really bloody massacre of the Civil War. Um, Nashville has been named, renamed Perryville, and there's a town called Leeville. There are all these Civil War references in the book um, because they're kind of hearkening back to that time um, where they want things to be uh, like they were in the past. 
Excellent. So it's, she's very sheltered and I do want to have her eyes opened. I try to allow her to see she becomes friends at, by the end of the book with a character who doesn't come from money. And she realizes they are also trying to keep girls with money away from girls from who don't have money, because just like you do in a society that's controlled by one group, they don't want people to know each other and talk to each other. Yeah, very good. Yes. And I, I loved that. I loved how they were allowed to be their own people, but yet they couldn't collaborate and share, you know, feelings or, you know, you mentioned, you know, her, her going through menstruation, you know, not being able to talk about that with someone who's your own age uh, huh. was something that was, I found really interesting, but also kind of disturbing in a way in terms of how the, the norms of this, of this new American society are set up. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned uh, Sister Helen a moment ago, and I love how uh, we we have two chaperones that we get to see Stella work with. Sister Helen, who you mentioned, is kind of like her best friend. Um, but then she dies under mysterious circumstances. And I, I don't want to you know give the plot away in terms of or give too much away in terms of what happens there. But 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 what what is Stella's reaction at first to Sister Helen's death? And then she gets with uh, another chaperone, Sister Laura, who comes onto the scene, who is very very different in many ways to Sister Helen. So. How does Stella react to Sister Helen's death, first of all? And then when Sister Laura kind of enters the picture, what is the initial uh, um, structure of their relationship like? Right. So like I said, Sister Helen is Stella's best friend because she moved into her home when, sister, when Stella was not even 12 years old, when she was about 11 and a half. They're best friends. They do everything together. She's not allowed to walk out the door without Sister Helen. Um, and she's her confidant. Her mother has pulled away because her mother was raised in quote unquote old America and doesn't really love new America, although that's kind of a secret in the book. Um, and so when sister Helen dies, not only is she devastated and feels like I have no one to talk to, I'm not close to my mom. I'm not close to my dad. I'm close to sister Helen, but she also thinks why did sister Helen die? Because the only reason bad things happen in girl to girls in new America is because the girl did something wrong. So she's been taught if you act out, you could get kidnapped or killed. And so she thinks, uh-oh, why did Sister Helen die? Did she break the rules? And am I in trouble because she was my closest confidant? Am I going to get hurt too? But then Sister Laura shows up and Sister Laura says, you've been living in a little bubble, you know, a privileged little bubble, and I'm going to push you out of it. And I'm going to make you see things from a different point of view. And at first, Stella hates that. She's furious. She wants to be a quote unquote good girl. Cause that's what she's been taught all her life that she should do. But then once she gets a little taste of freedom, she wants more. And she starts asking sister Laura to get her little freedoms that she's not allowed to have. And then she realizes I'm not free at all. And I'm never going to be in this country. And I don't want to say what happens. I don't want to give a spoiler, but she decides that this is no longer a tenable situation for her. Yeah, very good. And I love the scene where uh, Stella is left alone in the library for the first time. I mean, something that we take for granted all the time, those of us that have been in school or been in college and spent a lot of time alone in the library, for her to be left alone in the library, Sister Laura just takes her and leaves her there, is this sort of... Uh, uh, opening moment for Stella in a way that she's actually left alone unsupervised in the library and trusted enough by Sister Laura to to not do something that she shouldn't do. It's just one of those seminal moments in the story where I thought, wow, that, you know, this is something that just shows kind of how the women in this new America uh, are totally treated. So I really loved that feature. Where did you get the idea for this story? Where did the the plot, the characters, where did all this come from? 
Well, so the story starts with the question. Um, you know, as you said, I lived in 12 states growing up. I've lived everywhere but the Southwest. And I grew up in New Jersey. And I mostly grew up in the North. I also grew up in Indiana for a while. Um, but then since then, I've moved to the South. And I love it. I love where I live in Bowling Green, Kentucky. It's a wonderful place. But there is that question that there are some people who want to break away from the United States and form their own country. And I think it's a very small group of people, but you do kind of sit awake at night and think, what if people did try to secede from the United States and form a new country like new America, where would that leave me? Because I live in this part of the country that would secede. And I worry about that. I worry about what would happen to the rights of girls and women if a new country was formed, but I, really worry. I worry less about me because I could leave. It would be hard financially because our jobs are in Kentucky, but we could leave. But I really worry what happens to young people. You know, in this book, Stella is three years old when New America is formed. And I think what would happen to someone who grew up in this country? They didn't choose it. Maybe they're 10 years old. Maybe they're 12 years old. Maybe they're three years old. What happens when they grow up there and they didn't choose to be there? Their parents made that choice for them. So that's where the book started. What happens to the young people who get left behind if there is a group of people who secede from the United States? Yeah, I, I love that idea. And I know that uh, the issue that you're talking about there is is on the minds of, of a lot of folks as we see uh, what is going on in our country. And, and we talk so much about uh, how art imitates life sometimes, especially literature, how literature is sort of a, an introspection on our culture and our society. And I think uh, a lot of folks have some of those uh, issues and concerns that you're talking about, and, and you certainly manifest what, what that could look like uh, in, in that kind of a particular society. We're speaking with um, author M. Hendricks today on this episode of Now Appalachia. She's the author of the debut novel. Her debut novel, it's called The Chaperone, and the subtitle is In New America. In New America, Girls Are Never Alone. So we're going to come back to the book uh, in just a few minutes because i got so much more uh, I want to talk about and ask you about the, the book. But I wanted to ask you, um, first of all, uh, we mentioned in the bio that, that you're married to David Bell, who's been on our program a couple of times, and is just a, a fantastic writer, an amazing person. He's the director of the MFA program uh, at, at, Bowl, at, uh, at Western Kentucky in Bowling Green. Um, so I had to ask you... Um, uh, being being a writer and being uh, uh, with a writer and and sort of sharing that same uh, space, you know your 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 life space, but also your working space. What is that like when when both of you are, let's say, sort of uh, knee deep or elbow deep into a manuscript or a book or revisions or whatever that process is? How how does that work? How do you all? I know David's got other responsibilities too with, with with his teaching duties and things, but how do you all share that writer space? What is that like when when, when both of you all are, are are into a project, into a new book, and 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 you're navigating this the same sort of space in your home or wherever? What what, what is that like? It's actually pretty amazing because if you know, well, we have separate offices and um, we can just go into the other room and say, "I'm stuck. I don't want to do." And something kind of magic happens when we talk to each other. Like if I can't figure something out or he can't figure something out, we go into the other room and say, what do you think should happen? And sometimes as I'm describing it, I figure out the answer, just telling him. But other times we have these like crazy long brainstorming sessions, which are really fun. They're some of my favorite days. I love writing alone on the computer, but I also love those days when we brainstorm. We usually try to plot out a whole book together before we start writing, like brainstorming. Now, what could happen? And we don't plan everything, 
but we'll come, we'll brainstorm ideas. Um, we do that all the time. By the way, we've brainstormed a lot of books that have never been written, but it's still <laughs> fun. Um, and I love that. I think it's great. I think it's also great to have another editor in your house who can help you with that. We both help each other a lot with that. I mean, the hard part is that, you know, until we were in our mid forties, we had to worry financially about things and it was very hard. Um, we were both teaching for a long time and that was a full-time job and then trying to write as well. Um, one of the reasons we decided not to have children is we felt like we couldn't afford the time or the money if we wanted to both keep writing. So there have been some sacrifices. You know, we always thought we'd have kids and then we made the decision not to do it because of our finances and our writing dreams. Um, so it is hard. It was harder financially. My husband, David, always says that if you're a writer, you should, when you're in college, you should start hanging out at the business school so you can meet someone who majors in business and will make some real money. <laughs> yes, very. The, the the idea of the starving artist, so to speak. Yes. Yes. Very good. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned that point about, about the business side. I, I know you and I were talking before we started re recording that, uh, that, that that you were going uh, to doing some different events, some different uh, signing events and speaking events related to your book, and that you've got some uh, book festivals lined up uh, in the fall of 2023 that you're going to take advantage of. The oh. business side of writing, um, you know, so many people think that writing the book and getting the book in print is is the end of the journey, but it seems like more and more the sec that ends one half of the journey, but then the second half of the journey is kind of what you're undergoing right now. Can, can you talk a little bit about that, about the business side of it and and what you like about it and getting out and meeting people and, and talking with readers and getting a chance to showcase your work, how, how that all fits into your life as a writer? I think that's a huge part of being a writer is getting out there and sharing your work and getting people excited about it. I am naturally extroverted, so it's easy for me to get out and talk to people. And I love it. It's so much fun. I am one of those like weird combo extrovert, introvert people that I do become exhausted. Like by the end of the night, I have to be alone for a day or something after that. But then I can do it again the day after. Um, but the other thing that nobody tells you about is the marketing, especially social media. And I'm not a natural at that. Um, I actually hired a teenager to teach me TikTok because <laughs> I didn't know how to use it. And now I know how to use it. But it's it's really hard to constantly be posting. And I always feel like people must get tired of hearing about my career on social media. So it's very unnatural to me. But I think marketing is a huge part of it. If I did it all over again, I would study marketing and publishing in college as well as creative writing so that I would know more about the business. You know, I went to, like you, Ellie, I went to graduate school for creative writing and they didn't talk about the business aspect of it at all. And I think it's equally important. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up that point. And, and I, you know, when I when I'm asked uh, by, you know, when I speak or give workshops and, I, and I'm asked that question or I'm asked that question by by folks who are involved in MFA programs, I said, have a course in the business side of marketing. You can just call it that They're the, or the business side of publishing, rather, which deals with marketing and relationships and how the bookstore distribution and publication and you know what are, what's a wholesaler and all of that you know, what that is, because that is yeah. so important to the other half. And 
it's difficult when you're learning it on the fly. I feel like, I feel like when you're, when you're, when you've got a book out and you're trying to get it out there, but yet you're trying to sort of swim through this morass of stuff in terms of the business side of it, it's, it's hard to do both. And, and I really wish there was an, you know, more of that emphasized, uh, you know, even at an undergraduate level, students majoring in creative writing or with a, you know, a BA degree with an emphasis in creative writing would take uh, that kind of class. I think it really would be helpful and make them much more comfortable when the, when the publication time came around for sure. Um, it's a terrible feeling to know you should have learned all that before your first book came out and you didn't. Right. But I think it happens to most writers that they feel like they wish to know more. I tell all young writers, you should go into publishing right after college because you'll just be thrown in the deep end and learn everything about the business. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent point. It's an excellent point. So I wanted to ask you before we get back to the book, what is uh, one of your favorite books that you've read this year? One that just really stands out when somebody says, you know, what did you like this year that you've read or, or what might be your one of your best books of 2023? And we've still got, you know, a few months to go before the end of the year. But uh, right now, what would you say was one of your best books or favorite books you've read this year? Okay, I'm going to cheat and say two because they're very different. Okay. One, I loved Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. I was a Barbara Kingsolver fan from way back when, before she became like a critical darling and she wrote The Bean Trees, Pigs in Heaven in the 90s, which was my 20s. I loved her. And then this book, it, I just thought it was brilliant and it really captures the issues, I think in all of America, but you know, on the micro level in Appalachia. But then I also loved Lessons in Chemistry. Have you read that book? Yes, very I good. I love it because it speaks to all the gender issues that I care so much about. So those two books are kind of like the synthesis of everything I love in books. And, you know, Demon Copperhead is a dark read, but at the end, I felt hope. And to me, that is essential to a great book. And the Lessons in Chemistry, a lot of terrible things happen. And I felt hope the whole book. Mm -hmm. strange like all these terrible things are happening to this woman but i still felt hopeful the whole time yeah absolutely very good very yeah two excellent books if, if folks are looking for a couple of things to add to their to be read pile both of those are excellent reads for sure for sure we're speaking with author m hendrix here on this episode of now appalachia she's the title of the brand new novel the chaperone in new america girls are never alone so we'll go back and talk about the book uh, for just a couple of more minutes and uh you know uh m we were talking a minute ago about about um about Stella and kind of her evolution and uh, after uh, sister Helen's death and sister Laura takes over. One of the things I loved about how Stella kind of gets exposed to what we were talking about a moment ago about this other side of this new America is that these quote unquote hush hush parties where oh. she's taken and she kind of gets exposed to all kinds of different things. What happens at these hush hush parties and what is Stella's reaction as she kind of spends more time there with them and kind of sees what's going on at these parties. What's going on? Oh, wow. No one has asked me about that, Elliot. That's like the thing no one talks about is what happens at the hush hush parties, which is why they're called hush hush. Um, so in new America, because girls aren't allowed to go out without a chaperone anywhere, they don't go to parties. They don't go on dates. They don't go to the movies or dinner. They don't really go anywhere. Maybe they visit each other and have sleepovers, but they're very mellow kind of, buttoned up uh, events. So Stella finds out that there are these secret hush hush parties and she asks her chaperone to get her to one. Her chaperone is very hesitant because she knows at these parties, there's a lot of heavy drinking. There's a lot of hooking up and sex and sometimes drugs too. But more importantly, what sister Laura knows is that girls are taken advantage of at these parties. Sometimes even the chaperones who work at the government school, the govy school, they will be paid by 
young men in the community to bring their charges there so they can get them drunk and take advantage of them. So it's the worst. I mean, it, it might be the worst, ugliest part of new America, but I did want to show it in the book. And when Stella gets there, her chaperone sister, Laura has made her practice drinking so that she doesn't get taken advantage of. And so she gets there and she drinks a little, but she's also almost 18 years old. She's never kissed a boy. And I thought it was really important to show that young women, just as much as young men, want to have physical relationships. And so she goes and she wants to have her first kiss and her first kind of adventure. I don't want to say too much, but she goes a little farther maybe than she thinks she'll go. And and then she has been taught by Sister Laura how to safely get out of a situation she doesn't want to be in. It was very important to me as an author to model that behavior for young girls. I have um, five nieces and I talked to all of them when they were growing up about this is how you get out of a bad situation. You have to know that. And I wanted to show that it was possible. And so that's why I showed the hush hush party that it's okay for her to desire physical contact. And it's also important for her to know how to extricate herself from a situation she doesn't want to be in. Excellent. And I wanted to ask you about something that you alluded to a moment ago when we were talking about Demon Copperhead and Lessons in Chemistry, and that is ending the book on sort of a hopeful tone. And again, we don't want to give away the ending to your novel, but um, I feel like that that there was hope at the end. There was a lot of a lot of things going on here. As you mentioned, so many so, so many themes going on here about gender and sexuality and, and control of, of, of one group of people over another and, and all of that. But I felt like at the end of the book, uh, th- th- there was rays of hope and, and it ended on a hopeful, a hopeful note. And I just wondered, did you know that from the beginning that you wanted to end this book on a hopeful note? Or maybe was the first draft or two a little darker and you realized, oh, I don't want to end it that way. I need to offer a ray of hope. Or did you know, despite everything that goes on in this story, uh, I, I want the last, you know, 25, 30, 35 pages to have a hopeful tone. How, how did you establish kind of the ending there uh, in terms of tone and mood uh, as compared to what it goes on in the earlier part of the book? Well, I knew all along what the la- what was going to happen at the end. And I knew what I wanted the last line of the book to be. And I don't know if you know this in Gilmore Girls, Amy Sherman Palladino planned the last line as soon as she started creating that show. And it was the same thing. I knew exactly where I wanted Stella to go. I, I might've changed things along the way, but the ending, I knew where I wanted her to end up. I'm trying really hard not to say where she ends up. And I also wanted it to be an experience where she, as you said, she doesn't get to talk to other women and girls. And so I wanted to show that that can be a really positive experience um, and can lead to positive change. So I wanted her to have the experience of interacting with a lot of other women in a way who are different from her. Maybe they didn't come from a privileged background and I wanted her to experience that. So yeah, I knew all along, I, I will tell you something funny. I actually wrote an outline of the book and it's uh, over a hundred chapters. And I wrote the last line of every chapter and the last line of the book before I started writing the book, because I knew how important it was to end a chapter on a suspense, a note of suspense. Excellent. Excellent. Yes. I love that. I love that. And I love to hear writers talk about that, about how they, how they lay the groundwork for their stories, but you know, do they use outlines or not and how detailed and how they structure it. So that was really, really interesting to hear that for sure. I wanted to ask you too, uh, uh, Em, as we finish up here with you today on this episode, uh, 
if folks want to get in contact with you, stay in contact with you to find out what you're up to, maybe you're coming to a city or a town near them uh, and they want to stop by and see you either uh, later this this summer or early in the fall when you're uh, continuing your tour with your book, um, how can they stay in contact with you to keep up with all of that information and news? And then where can they get copies of The Chaperone? Well, um, they can follow along with me by going to mhendrixwrites.com. And if they go there, then they can follow me on, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and Goodreads. Um, and then also on my website, mhendrixwrites.com, they can see all the events there. And they'll also be on those social media platforms as well. And then um, the book is sold in all uh in all bookstores, online, and in person. Um, if you go to my website on the bottom of the page about the book, you can scroll down and click to about 10 different bookstores. I try to include all the bookstores that um, had my book early for pre-orders. Parnassus Books is my local independent bookstore, and you can get signed copies there. Um, and also the book is available on Audible, Kindle, all, all platforms. The title of the book is called The Chaperone. In New America, Girls Are Never Alone. Our guest today on Now Appalachia has been author M. Hendricks. She's the author. This is her, her debut novel, but she's been a Pushcart Prize-nominated writer uh, and currently lives uh, in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Uh, M., this is, this is a terrific book, and we just really scratched the surface of a lot of the themes and issues that go on in this book, but uh, readers will be in safe hands as they follow Stella's journey uh, as you take us through this new America and what she experiences. And I think you give a lot of people not only a great story, but a lot of things to think about. So uh, congratulations on the book and all the best to you on your book tour. And uh, hopefully some of our folks listening will stop by and see you at uh, some of your venues either later this summer uh, or early this fall when you're out on tour. So thanks for being with us on the program. Thanks for having me, Elliot. I really appreciate it. We want to take a moment as we finish up this episode now of Now Appalachia to give a special shout out to our executive producer. Her name is Pam Stack. She makes these podcasts possible behind the scenes and makes sure they get uploaded and distributed and copyright protected and all of those things that happen with podcasts. So we couldn't do it without her. So Pam, thank you so much for all of your support behind the scenes. We also want to remind you, this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. And that is going to do it for us this time on Now Appalachia but please come again next time. And in the meantime, stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. Thank you. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. For questions or comments about this program and to learn more about the host, Elliot Parker, and his books, visit his website at www.elliotparker.com. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.